0: You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about our church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. It's good to be back. Obviously, if you were here last week, you know that I, I was not here. I was uh, in Orlando um, at a Sovereign Grace Pastors Conference and several meetings, and so i uh, People asked me, it was my first Sunday off since we started the church, and people had asked me, "Hey, you know, are you worried or whatever?" And I'm like, "No, not really, <laughs> in part because of the folks in this room and all the folks who have been with us from the beginning. Um, and thank you to Mark for preaching. and I, I was I was sad to be away, but not worried at all. I knew the Lord um, has this church in in many good hands. This goes to show you this particular point um, that I keep emphasizing over and over again. Uh, The the local church does not surround one figure, not at all. Uh, The local church is us, (laughs) using the gifts that God has given so that we can care and love one another. That's the local church, and so um, I am excited to be back. I am excited, and we haven't been in Acts for about two weeks. If you remember, we had our membership Sunday where we looked at uh, Hebrews 10, and then um, Isaiah 40 was the focus last week, and so we're back At it, as you know from what Logan said, and and just as a reminder, the the sermon series title is The World Turned Upside Down. The big idea being this is that what we read in the book of Acts is that God is on mission to use his people, he's on his mission to use you to turn the world upside down. There are aspects of the gospel that the world just does not get. The life-changing message of Jesus Christ. It's unusual to those who aren't called. And so that message alone changes everything. It has changed you, Christian. It changes how we look at the world. Right After I got saved, right? After I got saved in my early 20s. How I began to see the world through these eyes began to change. The world had been turned upside down because of the power of the gospel. As it pertains to this sermon, as we continue on that trajectory, I want to begin by highlighting the title of the sermon, The Gospel for All, but Not Received by All. I I usually uh, do not highlight the title of my sermons still I I'm, I'm doing it this morning for this reason I firmly believe that even from a like a a calvinistic perspective or a reformed perspective the gospel is to be preached to all people I say that while at the same time it is God who elects his people it is God who effectually calls his people and saves his people a person can receive or does not receive the gospel because of God's sovereign choice. I accent this point because I want to remind you and show you that a part of reformed thinking, which is that's, how, that's one of the words I use to describe this particular local church, we're reformed in our soteriology, part of our thinking is to embrace and be enthusiastic about evangelism. Evangelism to our communities and to the entire world, which is what we are seeing as we go through the book of Acts. It isn't a bunch of Christians who are idle with their feet kicked up wondering what to do. That's not what's going on here. So I am going to use language that we're called to preach the gospel to everyone, while at the same time I will use language that says it is God who ultimately saves a person. We are merely tools in the hand of God, regardless of circumstances. As we continue to proceed in the book of Acts, our call to proclaim, we are called to proclaim, no no matter the circumstances, and we're going to See this highlighted over and over and over again. Uh, The text we're looking at this morning shows us the power of the gospel and the joy people have when they're transformed by the gospel. We also see in this passage, 25 verses, a little bit lengthy, we also see a realistic picture of the messiness that comes when the gospel is proclaimed. Namely, this is one of the sober truths we got to wrestle with this morning. Namely, a person can think they are saved, but in reality, they're not. How does that land on you? <coughs> got to wrestle with that. This statement by Martin Lloyd-Jones rings true in today's passage. What makes people Christians? Is not that they decide for Christ, but they are born again. The Spirit of God lays hold of them. I used to say this to the youth when I was in Minnesota. Listen, guys. You going to church? You grown up in a Christian home? You come into youth group? Does not save you. What Lloyd Jones is saying is that your intellectual capacity to know the gospel is not enough to save you. There needs to be more. You must be made new. I must admit, uh, this passage is sobering. It was sobering for me as I was preparing it, right? But it's here for our good. It's here so that we can understand our hearts a little bit better. Before digging into Acts 8, I want to back up and remind you how I started this sermon series. It's the first message on the book of Acts. The very first point I made about the book of Acts, which we're going to see unfold in Acts 8, is that it highlights the kingdom of God on earth from the beginning to the end. So from the Gospel of Luke, and that's the same author of the book of Acts, from the Gospel of Luke to Acts, the kingdom of God is the dominating thread woven throughout the entire tapestry, right? It is the brightest color. It is the thread that helps make sense of all these other things going on, all these other threads that are woven into this tapestry. We are reminded of this theme in Acts 8, verse 12, when we read that Philip... He What did he do? Preached the good news, right? We've seen that over and over again. People proclaiming the gospel about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. There it is again. There's that theme. We're going to run into it a few more times throughout the book of Acts. So what is the kingdom of God? What do I mean by that? There are a variety of ways to nuance a definition, but here's my explanation. The kingdom of God is God's sovereign rule over all creation, right? He, he created the world, Genesis 1-1. And he's completely sovereign over that. In God's kingdom, authority and sovereignty are exercised over everything he has created. So he's continuing to be sovereign. It's not like he was sovereign over creation, sat back and called it good, right? He continues to be sovereign over his creation. There's not a rock that gets Turned over without God's decree, the wind blows at the will of God. The justification and salvation of a soul only happens because of God's sovereign choice in God's kingdom. This is what we really see in Acts. In God's kingdom, we see his mission go forth to save sinners from their sin and from eternal separation. The mission of God's kingdom cannot be isolated to a particular location, but it is a worldwide mission. And that is what we begin to see as we've turned the page over into Acts 8. The first seven chapters of Acts tell us about how the gospel of G- Jesus Christ was impacting the city of Jerusalem, right? Got all these Jews in Jerusalem and the gospel was making an impact. And a movement does need to begin somewhere and there's no better place than Jerusalem, as we have seen, some Jews were being saved, others were not too happy about this young but rapidly growing movement of Jesus freaks. With the stoning of Stephen in Acts 7, that was three weeks ago, with the stoning of Stephen in Acts 7, we read how the persecution of Christians was impacting the movement. People died because of faith in Christ. Christ. Persecution was affecting the advancement of the gospel. In the end of chapter 7, the author of Acts, Luke, he kind of name drops. You remember that? It's kind of how I ended that particular sermon. You ever done any name dropping when you're talking with somebody? I know I have. To my shame. But that's what kind of Luke does here, right? He's like, hey, Saul was there. He says Saul was present when Stephen died. To explain further why Saul's name was dropped, we read in Acts 8, beginning in verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Here's the reason why Saul is mentioned. Like, what's the big deal here? What's with the name dropping? Who cares? Well, here's why. The persecution against the Christians became horrendous. I mean, people died, stoned. Jews busted down doors and dragged Christian men and women to prison. Saul was leading the way. In two weeks, we will look in greater detail at what God will do with Saul. Until then, you are given a preview which provides some context about the horrible and sinful life Saul was living. He was not a cool cat. He opposed the gospel by persecuting Christians. The actions of Saul play into the greater narrative in Acts. And that proclamation, I keep saying this and we say it over and over again, proclamation leads to, what, persecution. So once again, and what we're seeing here in Acts 8, and we've continued to see throughout Acts um, It is more difficult for Americans to understand the persecution mentioned here. That's why I got into that a little bit with the stoning of Stephen. It's hard for us to practically understand how proclamation leads to persecution, which in turn leads to gospel advancement. It just seems like a strange way to see a movement build. Let's persecute them. That's exactly what's going on here. There are Christians all over this world who are Comforted, oddly enough, by these verses. You ever think about that? You ever wondered how do these verses bring me comfort? There are Christians all over the world who understand persecuted and are comforted. Why? Because persecuted Christians know better than most that their service to God is not in vain. Their life is not in vain. They know where it's all headed There is a heavenly and eternal perspective at work. In recent years, um, the underground church in communist China continues to grow in the face of constant persecution. And there are many other countries where we see this. I'm I'm not talking about the state church in China, but gospel-loving, gospel-preaching Christians who love Jesus and want other people to love Jesus. They're being oppressed. But the movement continues to grow. Like Saul, the communist government in China will find these Christians and throw them into prison. I've had friends in China who've had to leave China or they would have been thrown into prison. And many stay (laughs) and the church continues to grow. But that's, that's real persecution. The church continues to grow Because the gospel cannot be stopped. Oh, people have tried and people continue to try. But the gospel cannot be stopped. The end has been written and God will see his worldwide mission through. Let's make it real for a moment. Um, If the United States government were to force... Every church within its borders to close. Should you be concerned? Right? I mean, there's a lot of political chatter right now. It's the election season, all that kind of stuff, right? But ask the question, would you be concerned? Now, I have no problem with Christians being involved in politics to protect religious liberty, right? I'm, I'm good with that. That kind of misses the point if you want to go there. Should you be worried that the gospel isn't going forth because the government suppresses true gospel churches? The answer? No. No. Why? Because the gospel cannot be stopped. It cannot be contained. The gospel is like water through the hands of the enemy who tries to stop it. It goes right through. Why cannot the gospel be stopped? Because the gospel isn't about me and it's not about you. It's about Jesus. And the enemies of this gospel tried to stop him. They tried. But did they? No. Jesus defeated death by rising from the grave. After all this, you think Jesus and the gospel message is going to be stopped? (laughs) Not a chance. Not a chance. No measure of persecution will stop the advancement of the gospel. It does not matter how many souls are out there. I, I don't know what is to come of this country. I don't know. But as Christians, we have hope and joy and peace. Because of the gospel we see in Acts as proclamation leads to persecution which is leading to the birth of churches um, Pastor Kent Hughes has said this love this following the church through Acts is like following a wounded deer through the forest drops of blood mark the trail And beginning in Acts 8, the trail is beginning to lead outside of Jerusalem. Twice in Acts 8, we read the church was becoming scattered due to persecution. Take a look at verses 1, and then I'm going to look at verses 4 to 5. And there arose in that day great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all, look at that word, scattered. Scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So some people were leaving, but the apostles were like, staying back, why we do not know? And then a couple verses later. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. There's that word again, scattered. Where are they going? Philip, who was not an apostle, he went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed Christ to them. We're beginning to see movement here. Let's slow down for a moment and see God's providential hand throughout history. It was the persecution of Christians in Jerusalem that caused some Christians to leave Jerusalem. Think about that. Do you see God's providential hand in that? Hmm. Even if those who were being persecuted did not understand why, like why, oh God, They're just praying with the psalms. Why? Even if they do not understand why, we do clearly see the good purposes of God at work. Here's the promise the early church and us can always lean into. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purposes. Note this. It is not your purposes. It's God's purposes. God's good purposes were at work in the early church even if they did not know why persecution was happening. The movement in the story of Acts is essential to see. The gospel is beginning to move from inside the Jerusalem walls to outside the walls. In other words, the ability to know God is not contingent upon being at a specific location. Jerusalem is, is a great city. It, has, it is, has an historic place within Christianity. And The Bible tells us we can look forward to a new Jerusalem. Revelation 21, verse 2. But the gospel is for every nation and every tribe and for every people of every language. What is fascinating about verse 5 is that the gospel didn't, go, it didn't just go outside the walls of Jerusalem, but it went to the most unlikely place, Samaria. Here's why the mention of Samaria is fascinating and instructive for us this morning. At the time, for Jews, uh, Samaritans were heretical outsiders. They were a bunch of half-breeds who did not deserve the time of day. Can you imagine being called like a half-breed or heretical, right? By a dismissed, mean dismissed by a particular group of people? When Jews traveled, in between their current location and their final destination, if Samaria was in the way, they would go around Samaria to get to their final destination, even if that meant several extra days of travel. They ain't got a car. They got a donkey and they're walking. That is what intense hatred looks like. I ain't even going in your land. thought about this as I was preparing for this morning. When you go to John 4, it talks about Jesus traveling, and it goes like this. He, Jesus, left Judah and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Hmm. Jesus breaking a few cultural ideas there, I think. And not only that, he goes to Samaria, goes to a well, talks to a Samaritan woman, which was also a no-no, and shares the gospel. Amazing. Long story short, Jews did not associate with Samaritans. So when we read that Philip, following Jesus, went down into the city of Samaria, a statement is being made here. The gospel is for all people through all times, period. i got to tell you this story. It only reinforces my point. At the very moment, like at the very moment, I wrote this section of my sermon. In comes this man called Jaja, who I met several weeks prior at the Waukee Library. Jaja, talk about totally different people. Jaja is from Morocco, and he's a Muslim. And I'm writing this, and here comes Jaja. Hey, the gospel's for him. The God, No matter how different we are, the gospel is also for Jaja. And it is my Christian privilege to share the life-changing power of the gospel with him. Philip went to Samaria to proclaim the gospel to these so-called half-breeds. Between verses 4 and 25, we read of Philip performing signs and even unclean spirits being cast out of people and the lame being healed. The Holy Spirit working through Philip was a sign of power and authority that has come with gospel proclamation. That's what we've seen in Acts. We've seen this pattern over and over. When these things happen, it says, verse 8, there, people were rejoicing, right? Right? brother got healed amen and rightly so people getting saved and there was joy there was one person who took a particular interest in philip and a specific interest in the source of the signs and wonders his name is simon and it's in verse 9 where the story goes from broad like big picture here's what's going on to narrow Simon is an individual singled out, and we need to know why. Why is this story of Simon in our Bibles? Who is Simon? Start there. Simon is a magician in Samaria who captivated crowds with magic. And I'm not talking about like a, a young child having a birthday, car, birthday party and there's, you know, he's doing the card thing or whatever, right? That's not what I'm talking about. There's something more going on with this Man named Simon. As I read about Simon, I think about like you know modern day witchcraft and the occult going on. There is an appearance of power, but the power is either an illusion or it com- it sources evil. Don't know. Text doesn't tell us. It says in verse ten that all paid attention to Simon. He was commanding crowds from the least of people to the greatest, and in. It was said of Simon. This is what people were saying of Simon. This man is the power of God that is called great. So that's kind of the reputation he was carrying. It seems Simon was treated like some type of deity. He gave the perception of performing his signs and wonders, and everyone was amazed. But a new game came to town. new game came to town. Simon's crowd was shrinking and just kind of wanted to know what's up. Where'd everybody go? I don't think Simon was antagonistic toward Philip. He tried to join Philip. Here's verse 13. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed. He was amazed. So it appears Simon got on board with many others who observed the signs and wonders and received the preached gospel. That that appears to see what's going on at this particular juncture in the story. As the story progresses, we read that news of what was going on in this, this land of Samaria eventually reaches back to Jerusalem and the apostles. Big guns come in. Here comes Peter and John. They were sent to Samaria to help with the ministry begun by Philip. We read of their ministry in verses 15 to 17, which is perhaps one of the most misunderstood or skewed passages throughout the book of Acts. Here's what happened. Peter and John went to Samaria to pray that the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit. That's verse 15. Remember, many believed, already believed, and were baptized in the name of Jesus. But what are we to make of this seemingly distinct moment of the Holy Spirit, right? What's going on here? How do we make sense of this? This might be confusing because a person can't be saved unless the Holy Spirit is already in them. It is the Spirit who draws a person to God and saves. And Then we have this other idea going on that Peter and John came down and Gave them the Holy Spirit or laid hands on them that they would have the Holy Spirit. So we've got to wrestle with the make of those particular verses. Here are a few interpretations that we can consider. First, some Pentecostal denominations. So I'm I'm mentioning this because I know some of you have come from Pentecostal backgrounds. And it's like, what do we do with this? And I'm going to tell you what they do with it. Some Pentecostal denominations look at this passage and say there is a specific second outpouring of the Holy Spirit that a Christian must receive. Pentecostals suggest a person receives the Holy Spirit when they're saved, but a second outpouring of the Spirit is still necessary. And they go to this passage. If you're familiar with Pentecostalism, you've heard this language, the second baptism of the Holy Spirit. Right? The second suggestion is, is that the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit when they were saved, but didn't know the profound implications that it was the Holy Spirit that revealed Christ to their hearts. Therefore, Peter and John had to teach them about the importance of the Holy Spirit in the Christian life. Like, I reflect on my own salvation. I got saved. I was reborn. But I got to tell you, (laughs) there's a lot I needed to learn. I'm trying to figure this out. Holy what? We called it Holy Ghost growing up. I've got Holy Spirit, I mean, what do I do? I mean, just, point is, there was a learning curve here. I think the second interpretation is more faithful to the scriptures. Remember, Acts needs to be read as a historical story, not a systematic theology book. It's often describing a story while leaving out pertinent details that are revealed in other parts of The New Testament. So it seems, at least to me, that God did save the Samaritans. They were baptized, then God continued to bless them through the ministry of John and Peter. I will also add this the Holy Spirit is constantly pouring Himself out to the church. It's not just one distinct second moment, it's a third, it's a fourth, it's a fifth, it's a sixth, it's a seventh. That's why we pray and we cry out to the Holy Spirit Pour out on us, O God, by the power of your Spirit, pour out. We are to pray expectantly over and over for the Holy Spirit to pour himself out in our lives. So with that theological question short up, which I had to address simply because it's there and people talk about it, and you might have questions about what's going on here, right? Back to Simon. It appears he was not a part of the group of people who received the ministry from Peter and John in Acts 8, verses 15 to 17. But in his lust for power, he goes to Peter and John, offers money, and says, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. In other words, Simon was looking around at the power that eclipsed his, Simon's star had fallen and he wanted to get back in the game. You always want to be careful to question um, a person's motives, but I think we can understand Simon's motive based upon the question he asked and Peter's response. This is what we can know for sure from their interaction. The Holy Spirit is not for sale. The gospel of Jesus Christ is, is not for sale. You can't buy the Holy Spirit for $10 billion. You can't buy the Holy Spirit every time you give to a charity or to your local church. Sure, good works are important. Good works like giving are evidence of faith. But pagans and non Christians, they do good works, right? Or at least a perception of doing good things. No, the Holy Spirit is not for sale. And listen, friends. There are preachers and churches who put the Holy Spirit up for sale. They put the promises of God up for sale. Some pastors and ministers want to leverage what is or is not in your bank account and couch their language with Christian overtones. It looks something like this. The pastor stands in front of the room and says, If you give, then you will receive. An earthly reward. If you give, then God is guaranteed to bless your giving ten times over. Listen, I I heard the gospel for the first time in a church that made those kind of claims. Interesting, huh? If you give a hundred bucks, It isn't going to be long before you receive $1,000 on your investment. Now, that's heresy. Got to call it like it is. It's heresy. Now, God surely does want to bless his children, he surely does. The giving has to be motivated out of joy and obedience to God because of the gospel. You give without an expectation to receive something in return. You give knowing that everything you have is actually God's. All that you have is the Lord's. You don't give to get something in return. As it pertains to this passage, the Holy Spirit is a gift from God, Acts 2, verse 38. If you could buy the Holy Spirit, then it would not be a gift. Peter's response to Simon is stern and appropriate. He's addressing the heresy in his own heart. These are strong words. Listen, May your silver perish with you. Right? Modern language. When you die, take your money with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. And then Peter gets right to Simon's heart. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. I hope you see what's going on here. Simon's heart was not right before God. Peter goes on to tell Simon to repent of his wickedness. He says to Simon, you need to pray to God that he would forgive your wicked heart. You are bitter and bound by wickedness, verse 22 and 23. Now, a person might read this passage and say, okay, I'm not wicked like Simon. I would never betray Jesus like Judas, like Judas did for 30 pieces of silver. I would never do that, to which I would say, you can have a wicked heart before God. I can have a wicked heart before God. But what is the difference? The gospel. We've been born again. And we know that the grace and mercy of God covers our wicked heart, forgives our wicked heart. It's the grace and mercy of God we, where we become more and more like our Savior. So, how else do we know that our heart is right before God when we think we can give our way to getting something back from God? If I just do this, then I can get this. How can we learn from Simon's mistake? We can learn by understanding why we pray and repent. So, Peter called Simon to do. Simon was called to pray and repent, and he did so poorly. Pray to the Lord for me, Simon replied, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. What do we we make of Simon's poor response? First, he never prayed to God. Notice that? We could say it is admirable that Simon pleaded with Peter to pray on his behalf, right? Nonetheless, Simon misses the point, which also suggests He is missing the power of the gospel to be born again. Listen, a little little backstory: how this connects with Simon. I I grew up in Dubuque, Iowa. Uh, Dubuque was founded by uh, French Catholics that was eventually overrun by German and Irish Catholics. Um, Not sure how that all happened, but it did. Uh, So very Catholic growing up, it seemed like there were more Catholic parochial schools than public schools. Um, If you were to ask my mom, she'll tell you this, when I was in the fourth grade, she thought I was going to be a priest. Didn't really work out that way. And of course, as a good Catholic boy who was an altar boy up into high school, I went to confession. And if you don't know, this is what confession's all about. You go into this small room, there's this wall that's a barrier between yourself and the priest, and there's this window that is screened over. The idea is that the priest doesn't know who's on the other side, but let's be honest, the priest always knew. And so there I would confess my sins to the priest. I was looking to the priest to be my Jesus. What's wrong with this picture? I'm going to suggest that Simon treated Peter just like I treated the priests during my moments of confession growing up. I relied on the priest for repentance and a changed heart. Simon did the same with Peter. The problem for Simon and young Sean Powers is that we needed to go to Jesus in repentance and for forgiveness. Jesus is the high priest who intercedes for his brothers and sisters. And this truth continues to apply to this church. Listen, I can pray pray for you. I will pray with you. I will. I do. But I am not your Messiah. I am not your Messiah. Don't want to be your Messiah. Couldn't pull it off. I can spur you on as a brother in Christ and as your pastor, but ultimately, 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 you need to fix your eyes on the Savior on Jesus. Simon was not fixing his eyes on Jesus. Another problem with Simon's question and then the response to Peter is that he was concerned about the wrong thing. Once again, here's our friend Mart Lloyd Jones to help us out. What is wrong with it is that even then he Simon was concerned about the wrong thing. What was animating him was fear of punishment. He did not see the enormity of what he had done. He did not hate his deceitful heart that was in him. He did not ask, oh, how can I be delivered from it? Not at all, he said. Pray for me that I might escape this punishment. That's what Simon wanted. And that has ever been one of the chief characteristics of, the, of this false kind of profession. It is a concern not to go to hell. Not a positive desire to go to heaven and be with Jesus, I'll add. The real interest is in this world, but we want to avoid the consequences. Simon wanted earthly power And fire insurance. That's what he wanted. Just spare me from that. I just wanted to be spared. I know I'm going to take some interpretive liberty, but I think I've built the case here. I think Simon misses the gospel. I do not think, at least with what we read in Holy Scripture, that Simon was born again. It does seem there is some intellectual understanding of the gospel. Verse 13 And he would follow Philip around while he performed miracles and preached. That's what we read as well. But Simon's interaction with Peter is an accurate indicator of his heart. A person can understand the gospel with the mind, but it may never make its way down to the heart. So you can do the song and dance at church, but never be saved. Now, I do not want to cast doubt in your mind about salvation. This passage isn't here for Christians to doubt and what God has done for them through Christ. That's not what this passage is here for. But Simon's story does allow an opportunity to show the proper flow of the Christian life. I think if God truly saved Simon, money would have been given with no strings attached. It would have been like Barnabas. Here you go. Sold the field. Here's all the money. It's all about the kingdom. Simon would have prayed knowing that it is Christ who grants forgiveness from repentance. It is God by the power of the Holy Spirit who reveals Christ to the heart. The story of Simon is in our Bible to show the gospel is for all, but the gospel is not received by all. The cause and result of a person's salvation are always, always, always in the hands of God. Simon thought he could buy his salvation. But God says, no, you can't. You can't buy it, dude. You can't earn your way there. You can't take a seminary class or get a degree. No. It is holy and only by the grace and mercy of God that a person is saved and is born again. Made new. I'm sure as I've preached, you've seen a variety of application points from Acts 8, verses 1 to 25. There are narrow applications from the life of Simon, right? The gospel was preached in Samaria, but now all, not all, received the gospel. We don't want to be like Simon. (laughs) We want to tap into the grace and mercy of God. And there's a broad application about gospel advancements, how I began the sermon. We know that we continue to be a part of God's mission to proclaim the gospel. We're part of that. We're part of that same mission. We are called to be a New Testament church and proclaim the good news regardless of how it's received. Which, by the way, takes all the pressure off us. Right? We can share knowing that it's God who saves. Even as the apostles left the city in Samaria to head home to Jerusalem, they continued to preach. Last verse. And when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. I was thinking about this verse. It's like, you know, when when you leave church, right? And you're like headed out to do your lunch thing and your family's things or whatever. Like as you go from destination A to destination B, what are you doing? Like are you preaching? Are you proclaiming? Are you looking for opportunities to share the gospel? Like they're headed back to Jerusalem, but you know what's between the city in Samaria and Jerusalem? Lots of little towns to tell people about Jesus. Like honestly, we're striving To follow God's word and to look at this as a picture of what it means and what it looks like for the world to be turned upside down, be part of that mission. As we go from point A to point B, what's in between? What's in between? People, that's what's in between. People who need to hear about Christ and him crucified and his resurrection and how he is currently reigning over this world. Again, and finally, the inclusion of the Samaritans is to highlight the gospel isn't for a particular race, ethnic group, or language, and just as we see the kingdom of God advance in Acts 8, it's pushing outwards, the gospel continues to push out not only to our community, but to unreached peoples throughout the world. Redemption Hill Church exists to glorify God by joining God in his great kingdom mission. Let's pray.